Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is something that we're still calling Serious Film People for now. And this is our, our second episode in our series on the Best Picture nominees of 1975. Or the 1976 ceremony, 1975 movies. Which always annoyed me that I have to make that clarification whenever I refer to the Oscar, any kind of Oscar year. But the movies of 1975. And uh, after... Last week's discussion of Barry Lyndon. We're talking about Dog Day Afternoon today, directed by Sidney Lumet. Uh, Kenny, had you seen this before? I had seen it most of the way through, but not all the way through. I had not enough oh. time to watch it in one sitting, unfortunately. TJ? Uh, I had not. I had seen the famous Attica scene many, many times, and I had seen the phone call scene as well, both kind of excerpted in documentaries about the films of the 70s. Hmm. Well, there's a couple of phone call scenes. I assume you mean the phone call between Sonny and Leon is what you're talking about. No, it was just like a super cut of all the times that people were on the phone in this movie. Runs about that's four, a joke, right? 48 minutes. Yeah, that's a joke. <laughs> it's, it's half the movie, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's weird because I, I saw this a long time ago, probably like more than a decade ago. And it's, it's rare that, especially because you guys have seen more 70s movies than me, I think, on balance. So it's weird that I've seen this and you hadn't. And this one sat for for me always in that like embarrassing blind spot area. Like I also hadn't seen Sound of Music since, until like last year. Um, I have I have not seen Sound of Music. Yeah, so you know even time, yeah. even if you've seen a ton of movies, everybody has some kind of like shameful blind spots. And this was a shameful blind spot. So is it a shameful blind spot to not have seen Sound of Music, or a shameful admittance to say that you've seen Sound of Music? It won 10 Oscars. It's, I think it's a shameful blind spot to have not seen it. It's kind of... I mean, Christopher Plummer just despised the film, right? I mean, we're getting off topic, I realize, but... One last thing about blind spots, because I, I want to talk about how, like... We'll, we'll get to this, but Pacino's so good in this. Like, so good in this. And um, I think it's, like, maybe his best work, honestly. Like, maybe that's controversial. That's, you know, controversial to say because he was in several of the best movies ever made. But um, I've seen The Godfather a lot. I've only seen Godfather Part Two once. And only in the last, like, year. So I can't really comment on Pacino's performance in Godfather Part Two versus this. But, like, I think he's a lot better in this than The Godfather, for example. I don't know that I would sign on to that. However, I think it's hard to separate this period of time. Because this is the fourth consecutive year he gets nominated for Best Best Actor for this movie. He had Godfather, then he had Serpico, part, Godfather Part Two, and now Dog Day Afternoon. He is riding away for, for an actor at the beginning of... of his career of fame and after post post discovery really with the godfather he's unquestionably on a high and this film shows us something that he hasn't been able to show us in the previous films like the other the other three films he's not really showing as much emotion in fact he's trying in some some level in the godfather films showing a slight resistance to that um and here we are seeing him not only humorous, but uh, kind of with a state emotion. Kind of a he's fighting with himself a little bit to try and, and keep keep himself under control, given the circumstances. Well, it's also like what he later becomes like a caricature of later in his career. It's like the good version of that here, where he's like kind of like all over the place and unpredictable, and like him saying she's got a great ass in heat you can see the origins of that in in sunny in dog day afternoon and you know uh, you know you just mentioned he was nominated for best actor for four years in a row was shut out all four of those years and finally won for i was gonna say he's got scent of a woman coming right that's one of the greatest he's got scent of a woman <laughs> right of all time you know what i i like that movie for many years 
and I can tell you're being sarcastic, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm, I'm less fond of that movie than I used to be, but it is kind of strange that he was nominated for those four movies you just mentioned, and then finally won for a ostentatious, shouty, uh, less subtle movie like Sense of a Woman. As you guys were talking about with that kind of run, um, what I think is was shocking to me about this performance, because obviously I know that it's Al Pacino who's going to be good. Um, there are brief Pacinoisms in there, you know, where, as you said, you can see the kind of roots of um, hoo But yeah. <laughs> what what's so interesting about it, especially placed within that span of four films, is those other three films that we mentioned require a... Uh, a strong masculinity that's also rooted in a sense of authoritative control. And Mm. all that Sonny has is the pretense of that authoritative control, but the film just continues to uh, peel back layers to that. And, and he also continues to, as a character uh, be forced to, but also just circumstantially let his guard down and show more and more, of himself and what what else i think is interesting about that is we'll get into this more later the way in which um he plays the intimate moments versus playing the moments that he knows are being televised you know mm. the 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 famous screaming attica scene is like a very kind of al pacino-y thing even even the kind of hysterical physicality of it whereas you look at something later like when he's dictating his last will and how it contained and subdued that part of the performances. There's also something else that he does because he has such expressive eyes. Um, and there's a cold steely glare that he uses as Michael Corleone. But in this film, he continues to have this kind of like twitchy blink that I think he uses as, as, as kind of like a fidget that almost complements the excessive sweating of someone that also speaks kind of stream of consciously <laughs> stream of consciously uh when the bank manager asks him at the one point like are you gonna get the ball rolling and he's like yeah i'm gonna get the ball rolling let's get the ball rolling you know i'm trying to get the ball rolling but you know i gotta i gotta keep you guys happy i gotta keep the ha- the people out there i mean i got a lot to do do you want to do this you know so his his whole response there is also him sort of it, it, it's like he's been revealed there as like you're not very good at what you're doing but then kind of like justifying like oh no 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 i do have a plan well you mentioned I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump backwards. You mentioned the uh, uh, dictating of the will scene. And apparently that was the reason Sidney LeMay wanted to make the movie, was that scene in the script. And so I'm going to use that as a segue to talk about the making of the movie real quick before we get into the actual meat of the discussion. Uh, this was uh, based on a Life magazine article called The Boys in the Bank, which I thought was a very clever title. Uh, obviously a reference to the 1970 movie, The Boys in the Band. Um, eventually... That was the working title of the movie that they eventually changed because Sidney LeMay said he changed it because he thought that was too like fluffy and like indicated a comedy and he didn't want that expectation. But for me, I think it's good to change the title because that kind of like gives away the game because like we don't learn why he's robbing this bank till like what, 45, 60 minutes in, something like that. And like alluding to the boys of the band kind of gives away the game a little bit. Also, what what do you think? Well, also, I read that. The early, I don't know if it was a draft of a script or just kind of the concept of what the movie was going to be, was going to be more sort of uh, shock exploitative. Uh, It was going to be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Sort of sensationalized and kind of um, uh, trashy, 
question yes, mark? Sensationalized maybe... is, the, is the perfect word, I think, because uh, this is just an example, but uh, Lumet and Pacino and Frank Pearson, the, screen, the, the screenwriter, all had to really say, put, a, put a hard stop to the suggestion that they include TV footage of Sonny and Leon's wedding. Which in real life during the bank robbery, they the, the news the news stations actually did include. Okay, I need I need to set this up. This movie is about a bank robbery. Al Pacino and, and John Cazale go in and rob a bank, and it's based on true events that actually happened in in Brooklyn in August August twenty second, nineteen seventy two. The robbery of the Chase Manhattan Bank branch in Brooklyn, and uh, we'll come back to Ken's point in a second. Uh, producer Martin Elfrand read the Life magazine article that was written about the bank robbery, which came out in September of 72, so like weeks after the robbery actually happened. And uh, immediately, uh, producer Martin Elf- Elfand and Martin Bregman uh, optioned the article and uh, decided to make it a movie. And it was a movie within three years. It was a very, very quick turnaround. Uh, and Warner Brothers paid the hostages. So <laughs> this was a hostage situation. Uh, these two men entered a bank tried to rob it but apparently the money that they thought was there wasn't so they had to dawdle a little bit and then became a hostage situation very quickly and so Warner Brothers paid the hostages $600 a piece to uh, be able to use their story and and interview them uh, except for apparently one hostage who wanted more money and was just left out of the movie so good job and uh, they paid uh, Sonny how do we say his last name? Waterwitz Waterwitz say it again uh, Waterwitz. Oh, that's, paid... the, that's the uh, that's the actual bank robber's name. Yeah, I don't think we get his last name in the movie. He just says Sonny. It's a different. Uh, it's similar to Waterwitz, but it is changed for the movie for purposes. Oh, of the okay. Movie. So we, we have Shoe Here's last name in the movie. Officially, I don't think okay. they. I think they only mention it on the news in passing once or twice. Okay. Okay. Sure. Well, the actual bank robber, the surviving bank robber, spoiler alert, uh, was paid seventy five hundred dollars by Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers created the uh, a budget of three and a half million for the movie which is 18 and a half million in 2022 dollars uh it was directed by Sidney Lumet from a script by Frank Pearson as 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 Ken just alluded and Sidney Lumet was coming off of Murder on the Orient Express the previous year which received five Oscar nominations and one best supporting actress for Ingrid Bergman and Al Pacino and John Cazale who played the two bank robbers in Dog Day Afternoon were coming off uh the best picture winner Godfather Part 2 also the previous year and Sidney Lumet had directed Pacino in Serpico, aforementioned two years earlier. I've not seen Serpico. Have you guys seen, Ken, have you seen Serpico? I have seen Serpico. TJ? Affirmative. It's been a long time. Same for me. So it's, it's, it's about <laughs> 20 years, probably. I would say it's one of those where, like, you know you've seen a movie a long, long time ago, and you're like, I have seen it, but basically I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whenever I fill out lists, like checklists of, like, you know, a thousand movies to see before you die, if it's, like, been more than ten years and I don't remember a single detail, I just pretend like I haven't seen it. Even okay, then I'm going to pretend I haven't seen Serpico, even though I have. I might have I might have put this movie in that category, actually, because I, I saw this more than ten years ago, and I probably pr- intended to watch Serpico at the same time, but I just, I don't know, I didn't. I think that was back in the Netflix DVD era when I first saw Dog Day Afternoon. So that's that's how far back that goes. That goes. Uh, so yeah, so Sidney Lay had recently directed Pacino in Serpico, which is why uh, he wanted him for this. Um, I think Pacino actually turned on the role like several times because he was so exhausted from Godfather Part Two, and um, I think he had like a small medical situation while making this movie. I think it was just like exhaustion. Well, and he part of that I think I can speak to part of that 
the bank robbery, as you mentioned earlier, occurred in August of 1972. It was a hot day, and they're depicting that in the film. They actually filmed it uh, in the fall and winter, and apparently many of the scenes in which they filmed outside, it was like in the 30s or 40s. And they were sprinkling water on Pacino during those scenes so that he looked like he was sweating. So he was wet and in very cold weather for many of these scenes. Yeah, I read in the like the IMDb trivia section or something, so take this with a grain. It's unsourced. But the scene that takes place at JFK in the third act, it was like 40 degrees out or 30 degrees out when they filmed that. And so you could see the actor's breath. And it's supposed to be a hot August night, so they would give the act. They would put ice in the actor's mouth, so they wouldn't be able to see their breath in the film. Which would that's tough. That's tough conditions, you know. So Pacino backed out multiple times because he was tired, and then that bore out because he almost didn't make it through the shoot, basically. And he didn't do a, a movie for a while after this. He went back to the theater for a while. Uh, they almost replaced him with Dustin Hoffman, but um, apparently they, that didn't really like. That wasn't like close to happening. They just like. They wanted Pacino the whole time, and they, they eventually got him. And uh, it was actually Pacino who suggested John Cazale, again, having just worked with him on the two Godfather movies, which is weird because I, I learned that the character that John Cazale is playing, Sal, he was 18 at the time. The real-life person was 18, and John Cazale's 39 here. So that's a different vibe. That's a different that's a different kind of character. But I guess I, th- I think that John Cazale kind of wowed Lumet in the audition, and that's why he, he went with him. And of course, John Cazale is—he'll uh, come up again if we keep doing this podcast long enough. But what's the what's the big piece of trivia on John Cazale, TJ? He had five movies to his filmography uh, before his untimely death, and all five of those films were nominated for Best Picture. Quite a stat. Have we seen all five? Yes. I have. Yep. Well, well, let's see. They're the Godfather, Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon. The Conversation in Deer Hunter, is that right? That's correct. I've not seen The Conversation, then, so I'm, I'm four for five. But also, Deer Hunter is kind of in that, uh, it's in that, I saw it in college, so that's, you know, more than ten years ago at this point, so that, I think I remember a decent amount of it, but, I mean, there are parts of Deer Hunter that are hard to forget, so maybe oh. I'll consider yeah. that one checked off. <laughs> Deer Hunter. And in that film with his wife. Or, I don't uh, know if they were married. Were they married? No. no I, they, I think they were married. No, they were not. They were just, they were, oh, okay. they were... If if they had been in you're talking about Meryl Streep, yes, it's it's, it's Meryl Streep you're yeah, talking about. Yes. There's Correct. an actress. She was famous in the '70s. Several uh, Academy Award nominations. Her name was um, Meryl Streep. Mary Streep. And um, the two of them were together. We haven't heard much from her since then, but uh, they were a pretty famous power couple in the '70s. It's one of those situations. This is this is where I'm bringing in the law. Had they been in California or Hollywood, for example, they would have probably been considered common law married. But New York was not a common law state, so they. And they'd never gone through a ceremony or officially signed any licenses. So, yes, they were not actually married. This has been Law Corner with Ken. The decision to hire a lawyer is an important one and should not be decided based (laughs) solely upon advertising. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's really it's obviously sad that he died so young and so untimely. And it's it's interesting that there's like a. A mention here in this movie where he's talking about cigarettes with one of the bank tellers and he says i don't smoke cigarettes because i don't want to get the cancer and i don't know if he had cancer yet but he would be dead of cancer within a few years of him uttering those words which is again very sad and bleak it is yeah it is a dark it is a dark moment in the movie if you are aware of yeah. the actor's background yeah uh this movie was very well received by both critics and audiences 
it made $46 million at the box office, which adjusted for inflation is a quarter billion dollars in 2022 money, which is insane. It's a crazy And it was the fourth highest grossing film of 1975. I believe the number one grossing film would have been a movie we'll talk about in a couple weeks. And the number two. Both Uh, the number one and number two films of 1970. Number two, the number one, number two, and number four were all nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars that year. Was number two the ultimate winner of Best Picture? That's correct. Or was it? Yep. Number two was the ultimate winner. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and it was so it was nominated for the uh, Doctor Afternoon was nominated for six Oscars: Best Picture, Best Director for Lumet, Best Actor for Pacino, Best Supporting Actor for Chris Sarandon, which I believe is his film debut. Uh, future Mr. Susan Sarandon and future Mr. Pr- Pr- Prince Humperdinck and Princess Bride, which is what I know him from. And uh, nominated for Best Original Screenplay for Frank Pearson, who won. And because a different movie that we'll talk about dominated the Oscars that night, that's one of the only major awards won by a movie that was not the Best Picture winner was the. Best Original Screenplay for this film, and is also nominated for Best Film Editing for Dee Dee Allen. Uh, and as as Ken alluded, this was the last of Pacino's four consecutive Best Actor noms, and um, quite a run, uh, unprecedented run, really, and not really replicated since. This is directed by Sidney Lumet. TJ, have you read Making Movies by Sidney Lumet, the book? Uh, I did, like, 10, 11 years ago. Okay, Ken, have you read Making Movies by Sidney Lumet? I have not read his book now okay uh, i read it a couple years ago um i really really recommend it it's excellent um but it, it, one thing i kind of got from it something i th- i think i probably already like intuited but like it really comes clear in he, you know reading you know reading his writing on his profession which is you know directing he lumet was a very like um he kind of saw directing as just like a nine-to-five job like he didn't like over mystify it or over like over over emphasize his importance it was just like a job he did and like you know he would go to set film some scenes and go home and have dinner with his wife you know and he was you know wore jeans and that kind of thing he was very unpretentious and i think that that kind of comes through and like his movies aren't very flashy you know that they, they kind of go with more of a maybe documentary is too strong a word but a, a realist aesthetic i think and you know again it's the lack of pretension is that I'm kind of connecting like his attitude towards making movies and like how how his movies look, you know. And so, Ken, the first thing you want to talk about was the emphasis on realism in this movie. So I kind of wanted to segue with with Lumaine. Like all of his movies, I kind of have like a, a serious realism. But what do you think about this movie in particular, having like that grittiness to it? Oh well, it's 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 steeped in naturalism. Like this is this mm-hmm. is I, I coming off of we talked about Barry Lyndon, and I almost wonder whether this is our first maybe repeating theme of best picture films really but in the 1970s there's a lot of this pushback against uh any kind of any kind of uh, fantasy or melodrama or uh, overemphasis on on too much emotion or fluff so are you saying that are you kind of equating barry linden in dog day afternoon with their realist realist uh, depictions because i would well, counter I, if you are well i think the intent we discussed Barry Lyndon. There is a certain intent on the part of, of Kubrick. accuracy. Yes, of accuracy. Yeah. Yes, and he's trying too hard. Whereas he, certainly Lumet is coming at it from a different angle. He allowed the actors in this movie to improvise in many scenes. Don't don't divert don't don't diverge from the script too much, but you know say it the way you would just naturally say it. That kind of thing. And so he and well, he and he's not controlling it like Kubrick did in Barry Lyndon, but there's this idea that people 
the audience deserves something that is real. Well, two two points in comparison to Barry Lyndon is, as TJ mentioned in our Barry Lyndon episode, awful lot of zooms and an awful lot of, like, pullouts, which is, you know, the opposite of a zoom, you know. And that's something that your eye cannot do. Like, for example, Alfonso Cuaron does not do zooms or pullouts because, like, he only does pans and tilts because he wants the camera to be able to mimic what your eyes are capable of. And as TJ said in our Brandon Linden episode, your eyes cannot zoom. Right. So he does not do zooms. And so I don't think there's any zooms in this. But, like, that's one aspect where Barry Linden is, like, not realist, quote-unquote, compared to Dark Day Noon. And the second is the music. You know, there's a, a ton of For score. Sure. And Barry Lyndon, there's there's no music in this. Minus the there's like an op- there's a song on the opening credits, and then we hear the Looney Tunes theme song very very briefly, diegetically. But other than that, there's no music in this, and that was uh, a conscious choice on Lumet's part. I think that's an important point of what Ken brought up, but also your correction. And I think we can kind of join this together by just shifting the word slightly from realist to naturalist. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, the the link that we're seeing between Barry Lyndon and Dog Day Afternoon, I think, is a commitment to a feeling of authenticity, which both aesthetic uh, modes, you know, Kubrick's sort of highly formalist aesthetic, and then Lumet's, um, which, by the way, I've heard it pronounced Lumet, which I know Lumet. is not the posh way. I'm just going to say it that way, but I have no idea. It's fine. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to call him Sidney Lumet. Uh, no, but what, what, what he's doing, which is um, also an aesthetic style, I think a lot of the times, and you guys aren't making this, this mistake, but I think a lot of the times we make the mistake of thinking that just because something appears to be more naturalistic, therefore it's like less directed. Do you know what I mean? Mm, like, yeah. oh, it didn't. Yeah. Uh, whereas you, you watch uh, Barry Lyndon, it's like, oh my gosh, look how gorgeous it is. Look how much they did this. Whereas this, it's like, oh, it's boring. It's click and shoot. I, I think that's. A misguided thing, and again, I know you guys aren't saying that, but uh, what's important to this is, to the naturalist aesthetic of this movie, I think, is the feeling of immediacy and the feeling of presence. It's not in real time, but it's a two-hour film that takes place over eight hours, so the time is condensed. The space is condensed. I've got more on that later. And uh, that's a common thread throughout Lumet's filmography, especially if you consider 12 Angry Men. takes place Mm. largely in one room. Uh, Failsafe is done in a lot of tight close-ups. Network is done in a lot of tight close-ups. And, and so a feeling of condensed space or sort of an intense claustrophobia is something that's important to his naturalist style as well. So it's seemingly non-intrusive. And I think what he's playing on particularly in this film that's important is uh, borrowing the aesthetics of television and of documentary film. And because what what those two things do, and this is the text and subtext, to use a Josh phrase, uh, of the movie, is the promise of um, verity, the promise of verisimilitude that television is supposed to give us and that documentary is supposed to give us. Documentary, even though this falls apart, you know, upon a second glance, documentary says, I, the filmmaker, am not intruding in this. Television says... And that's the way it was, right? Um, and and the film is playing upon those naturalist aesthetics because TV shows you something not that happened in the past. TV shows you what's happening right now, right? Like, that's the illusion of it. We can see it within the movie. But what I think is interesting is that Lumet is presenting that as the guiding aesthetic mode of the film and then um, br- bringing out certain contradictions or certain, like, dialectical oppositions between 
orchestrated performance and the illusory lie of real representation. He's doing something very similar, although a little bit less less aesthetically flashy than what Paul Greengrass does. Yeah, that's a good point of comparison, yeah. And, and a, I think a, a way in which it kind of... You could say fall apart. Fall apart makes it sound like it fails. I, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but the way in which there's an embedded contradiction is precisely the casting of Pacino, right? Um, right. You're making this sort of almost neorealist film, almost, but it's reliant upon the star system. Correct. There's also... And there's a, there's a certain... There, there's qualities between there's a different quality of filmmaking i would argue when they're in outside the bank from when they're inside the bank for sure um we certainly see it when pacino is outside we are watching the entire thing happen almost as if you were watching either a documentary in many cases or watching something that's recorded for the news and he's doing that on purpose live news coverage yeah right Uh, i mean there's shots from overhead depicting the street and the crowds and the police. And then uh, this is where I think you're alluding to Greengrass. I think that's that's a pretty good uh, illusion because Greengrass just kind of takes it and runs with it, kind of extrapolates out. But in this case, Lumet actually did use uh, rollers and he put some of his cameramen on like skates because he wanted the ease of movement back and forth and to allow Pacino to just kind of do his thing on the sidewalk and wanted the cameras to be able to just move quickly and suddenly between Pacino and the, the, the police and the crowds. And so let Pacino do the Pacino thing, and the camera's just going to follow as he does it. I want to mention the Greengrass thing, and also on the, the this is happening now thing that TJ said. Like, Paul Greengrass has made several movies based on events that happened within the decade or even more recently than that like he made united 93 about 9-11 he made the movie in 2006 he made a movie about the 2011 norway shootings and he made the movie in 2018 so within seven years and he made captain phillips four years after the events of captain phillips Uh, and the fact that this movie opens with a title this movie opens with a title card that says what you're about to see is true it happened in brooklyn new york on august 22nd 1972 and this movie's coming out in 1975 so it really is kind of like a I, I like what you're saying there, TJ. That that that's interesting. That he, you know, it's it's a right now thing. Well, and I was going to save this for later, but now I think is a good time for it. Um, it's time for our first quote of the of the day, coming from TJ's research. So this comes from a essay uh, originally published in the College English Periodical. Oh, you bet! It's political consciousness and English studies. So wake up if you fell asleep there. It's called Class and Allegory in Contemporary Mass Culture, Dog Day Afternoon as Political Film, written by Frederick Jameson. If you don't know who Frederick Jameson is, he's one of like the major uh, literary theorists of our time. He's in his 80s now. He specializes in postmodernism and contemporary literature, uh, in allegory, and in Marxist criticism. Here, here's a, a piece from his essay. He says, I believe the latter success, he's referring to films that are um, documentary hybrids, that was a popular thing at the time on television, like reenacted documentaries, basically. I believe the latter success, he writes, is at least in part to be attributed to the distance which such pseudo-documentaries maintain between the real-life fact and its representation. The more powerful of them preserve the existence of a secret in their historical content, and at the same time that they purport to give us a version of events exacerbate our certainty that we will never know for sure what really did happen. 
This structural disjunction between form and content clearly projects a very different aesthetic strategy from those of classical Griersonian documentary of Italian neorealism or of Kino Pravda or Cine Verite, to name only three of the older attempts to solve the problem of the relationship between movies and fact or event. Attempts now seem closed to us. So here's an interesting thing that he's drawing out here, which is uh, the way I suggested earlier that the naturalist aesthetic kind of breaks down. Um, Jameson's suggesting that that's actually one of the better things about the movie because that then highlights the, the surface level of the aesthetic in the sense that this is a story told. So even though we say at the beginning, what you're about to see is true, true, not factual, true, right? We got to the essence of a truth here, but this is still like a Hollywood production of what you're seeing. And, and thus that reinforces the strength that something actually happened that we are sort of beholden to the spirit of. So that's, that's a lot of really good stuff on the aesthetic of the movie, but I also want to talk about the actual narrative, like the story that takes place. And I'm going to ask about the motivations of the characters, but because, as you just alluded, TJ, this is a thing that really happened, and so I want to make the distinction that when I'm t asking about the motivations of the characters, I'm talking about the characters in the movie, the fictionalized version of the story, and not the real-life people, because sure. those might not necessarily be the same thing. And so, as I kind of alluded earlier on, the reason for the bank robbery is not revealed until about an hour in, halfway through the movie. And we learn that Sonny, the character played by Al Pacino, is robbing this bank in order to obtain money to pay for the, uh, what he says, uh, sexual sex, sex reassignment surgery of his partner. Uh, now we call that gender confirmation surgery nowadays. His partner's played by Chris Randon, Leon, Oscar-nominated. And they seem kind of estranged in the movie. Yes. And so it's it seems like this is something that certainly Leon did not ask for. Not only did Leon not ask for this not ask Sonny to rob a bank to pay for her surgery, but it seemed like they might not really be on speaking terms anymore. And so th th that's not really something I picked up on the first time I watched this like 10 plus years ago. And there, there's a version of this story where it's like a, a sweet act of love that Sonny is doing this, robbing this bank in order to pay for this surgery. And I think maybe the first time I saw this movie, that's kind of how I read it. But now you, you kind of get the sense that he and Leon are estranged. Now, now it strikes me as like a, a very misguided, foolish thing. I mean, it's, robbing a bank is always going to be foolish, but, like, even the motivation seems foolish and misguided to me. Like, it's not a noble motivation. That's how I read it this time. What do you think, Ken? Well, I think, yeah, the whole the whole idea, I mean, Sonny is, from the start, kind of, there's a certain element of where, I guess, Lumet was almost kind of hinting at an anti-hero protagonist here, because from the start... The, the bank robbery happens literally within the first few minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. And in, almost immediately, things start going wrong. I mean, there's a third bank robber who chickens out and leaves, and there's the back and forth with the, with the keys at the door, with the, the, the security guard. All of this stuff starts, it's just crumbling. There's The money has been taken out of the vault, so they've only got a couple thousand dollars actually in the bank for them to steal. They planned, they mistimed it. It almost becomes almost slapstick to a degree, and I think this whole idea that there is a there is a part of Sonny in the beginning of the film that we're supposed to identify with or like, the fact that or root for yes, because he and because he and Kazali are not he and, he and or Sal is the other character. Sonny and Sal 
They don't appear to be menacing. They're not actively trying to harm anybody. In fact, Sal repeatedly, in kind of offhanded comments to one another, they're like, we're not actually going to, you know, Sal doesn't actually want to shoot anybody, even though Sonny's threatening it. And they're, they're not actually out to harm anybody. They just want the money. And there seems to be a motivation that but we're not discussing. Sa- but Sal does say, hey, that thing you said about throwing the bodies out, I'm ready to do it. Yeah, Sal's, <laughs> well, we, we do have to get. I want to. I, I want to table Sal for a second. Yes, we'll talk about Sal in a second. Right now, I want to focus on Sunny. There's a roller coaster going on with Sal. I agree, but with Sunny, as the film goes on, and we see it with the crowd, I think outside, and even the news, the television, to a degree, there's a certain element of the public, the working class, the 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 everyman, who's kind of trying to root for Sunny, until we get the revelation of his motivation, and then. All of a sudden, there's the instant reaction from the news and the crowd outside where they kind of turn on him a little bit, except for the there's suddenly an increase in, in uh, members of the gay population who show up outside uh, the bank. But the news is suddenly focusing entirely on his homosexuality. And then we also learn more information about his ex-wife and his kids. The fact that he has an ex-wife, he has two kids, and he left them for... And then welfare. For right, he left them on welfare. Right, exactly. They're on welfare, and he left them for Leon. And he, we're, we also then, once we meet Leon, learn from his descriptions to police that Sonny would go off the handle and at times was violent. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually register with what we've seen from Sonny, except for the fact that oh, he's robbing a bank. But he never, sh- he never really shows the level at which Leon seems to be describing him. And you're like oh, this is like a domestic abuser that we're dealing with. And it's almost the same way that, that we get Sonny kind of trying to reason away the bank robbery to get money for Leon as an act of love. He also, as TJ was alluding to earlier, that beautiful scene where he's writing, he's dictating his will. Um, he's, he's actually thinking about the wife and kids that he left behind, even though we see him at one point trying to talk to his wife and just loses his shit things up on her finally he does yeah and it's like he's almost trying to convince himself maybe to a degree as well as the audience that he's better than he maybe is there's a lot that i got i got to comment on a lot of stuff you just just said so you said that lumet is trying to build sympathy with sunny and, and sal and i agree like it's it's clear that like it's not just greed motivating these guys it's something else and like they are sympathetic i think at first particularly like their their bumblingness is sympathetic for sure and and relatable in some way i guess and the there's an anti-authoritarian angle that they're also taking like the every man working class kind of people thing that's also an angle here to make us root for sonny and sally even more and then the introduction that he's doing this for like what he thinks is a noble reason is interesting and even though the crowd in the movie kind of turns on him to an extent when they learn why he's doing this because you know gays in the 70s was a lot different than you know there's not pride month in the 70s or was there i don't think so we're at this point about three years after the stonewall riots right yeah so we're 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 not far removed from stonewall so it was a different time right but at the same time they're like i'm i'm questioning the nobility of this and like as you kind of alluded like there's two back-to-back scenes where he's on the phone with leon and he's on the phone with his wife and you you get the sense that he and Leon aren't even together. Like they, they just like had a thing, but aren't together anymore. Leon's in a, in a mental institution. I think she attempted suicide. And so it's, it's messier and it's a lot more nuanced than just like a, 
yeah, it's not greed, but it's also kind of noble. But like, is it though? I don't know. I'm kind of talking in circles. TJ, what do you got? Well, I think I do. Um, I think we have to understand, uh, we we have to historicize this as well. Um, This man's a veteran, a disillusioned veteran, both of them. Um, We are post Watergate. Um, Barely. 1972, there's, I know we can't relate to this now, but there was rampant inflation. Um, And he left, he left a family on welfare, right? Um, He can barely make ends meet. Uh, There's, there's a strong vein in here of sort of, you know, antisocial impotent rage. And I'm not saying that as, as negative things, but as, as literally anti the forces of society. If you look at where, where it sets up, I mean, he's in a bank. And the marginalized take the bank, okay? The man who's uh, bisexual, the man who is a forgotten veteran, the man who is lower caste, all the people that work in the bank other than Mulvaney are women who are underpaid. It's mentioned several Mm -hmm. times. And then where the man sets up, the cops and then later the FBI, where do they set up? They colonize the spaces of mom and pop shops. Right. So yeah. there's there's a strong undercurrent also of seeing this movie a, a little bit as like a class metaphor, but really as about uh, there, there, there's all of these intersecting motivations within the sunny character. Again, character, not 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 actual person um, of which the uh, things that we've been talking about in terms of getting the surgery for his wife is one of them and one of one of the big ones. But it's also so much of the film happens before that's even revealed that i think this needs to be understood as yeah this needs to be understood as um kind of an like i said an anti-social revolt it's interesting that when he's interviewed when Sonny's interviewed by the newscaster he's asked explicitly why are you doing this and he gives him a a evasive answer about you know hey why does anybody do anything like i want money i don't i can't get a job blah 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 and it's like but it's kind of a lose the fact that the economy sucks and, every, and even jobs you can't get, you can't live off of it and that kind of stuff. So, again, he's he's just kind of playing games with the guy because, you know, we're still 20 minutes away from learning his real motivation. But it's it's interesting that he kind of sets it up as, as that kind of thing, TJ, what you were just talking about before we learn he's actually doing this to get a specific amount of money for a surgery. So, TJ, do you think he's noble for what he's doing or do you think this is misguided or can it be both? I think it can be both. Um, this is a man that's under... Again, tremendous duress, and I—I I don't want to sound like I'm uh, making him out to be a hero, or really even kind of an anti-hero in the traditional sense. But I, I think he thinks he's justified, which is not no, enough. He definitely does. Yeah. It's not enough to make an ethical decision. But um, you know, you mentioned that it doesn't seem like Leon even necessarily wants this. Um, the the final title card, which I know it's referring to the real life person, but it does exist within the diegesis of the film, so it is also referring to the character. Um, Leon takes the money and gets the surgery. Yeah. Right? Because of the movie, ironically, by the way. Yeah, ironically because of the movie, which is kind of fascinating. Um, so, yes, is my answer. What's Sal doing here? This is interesting. He's so complicated. There's there's not a whole lot of time actually given to Sal. He's always quiet, and he's in the background for most of it. I mean, if we're talking about the fact that Pacino is allowed to be out front for most literally out front, he's literally the one going out in front of the bank, and he's out front in this movie. As TJ said, he is the star power. Because uh, all he's quietly in the background, and we don't get as much focus on him. But the little scenes we do are 
really shocking. Like there are some there there are some scenes where you unquestionably know that there is something going on with this guy on multiple levels. Well, it's something I didn't really think of the last time, and it was only this most re- most recent watch. There's, am I crazy for reading a bit of a Lenny George dynamic between them? Like that maybe Sal is not all there, but th- what is there is an intense loyalty to Sonny, which is again to allude to my men, Lenny and George. Like I don't know, man. Like I don't know why else he'd be there besides he just like wants to go along with Sonny for whatever Sonny needs and and to leave the country for Wyoming. Yes, <laughs> yeah. so, yes. Uh, I read. I read that that was improvised. So nice. about halfway through the movie, Al Pacino gets a scheme that they'll get a jet from the cops and they'll fly to some country. And he asks Sal, where do you want to go? What country do you go to? And after a pause, he says, Wyoming. Yeah. <laughs> and Pacino is surprised by the answer. And apparently that's because Pacino did not know what John Cazale was about to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I think he stands as a... He's a less developed character, but he stands as a counterpoint to Sonny such that we're allowed to uh, empathize more with Sonny. Um, that's also, I think, the ways in which he gets along with all of the women that are that are uh, working in there, like teaching them how to do the, the rifle switch and whatnot. It, I think he functions dramatically as, like, if you think Sonny's crazy, uh, check out Sal. You know, um, mm. and and so when you kind of have those two choices, it pushes you a little bit more towards Sunny. Can I can I back up to Sunny just for a second? Um, there was yeah. something I wanted to draw attention to in that scene where he, one of you mentioned this, um, dictates his last will and testament, and he does first uh, to my darling wife Leon, and I, I love the way Pacino plays it because he says to my darling wife Leon. You know, so you're, you're waiting in that moment where he's saying this is the last thing that, that anyone's going to hear from him, and that's the, f- the first person that he prioritizes, right? Which could suggest something about his affections, or it could suggest something about making sure that he wants to get um, the story out there about why it is that I did this. He then does It's go- also interesting... It, hold on. It's also interesting that he refers to two different people as his wife. Yeah, I was, yeah, was going to say his next is sweet wife Angela. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's not like a to hell with you, Angela, right? Um, you are the only woman I ever loved, and I repledge my love to you, he says, right? Then he goes to his children, he asks his mother for forgiveness, and he says, a military funeral, and I'm entitled to have one free of charge. All the things that he mentions there kind of reestablish him as, and I'm borrowing here from Anthony Macias, normalized conventional features of an honorable citizen's life. Uh, I'm married, I love my wife, I have kids, I'm sorry, Mom, and I fought in the Army and I want to be remembered that way. Which, actually, there is a segue there because Sal Sal is, if, if Sonny has many, many facets, we're talking about the fact that obviously both of these guys are veterans of Vietnam, it is clear Sal is your, your more traditionally depicted severely affected by PTSD veteran of Vietnam to this to the extent that when we see him he seems to have refound some kind of almost uh, militant level religious uh, beliefs I mean he is he's refound his faith and to the point that he is as we said criticizing some of the tellers for smoking um, he the, the idea that the body as a temple kind of thing he refers to the the body's a temple and like i'm curious what sal thinks about sonny's intention with the money because he's getting this money for a gender reassignment surgery it is a 
a changing of the body. I wonder. I wonder what Sal thinks thinks of that because we never have we never have any sense of what Sal thinks of the motivation. I think robbery. We, I think we do. There's a there's a hint. Sal is very very uncomfortable with the newscasters quoting or, or exactly. referring to yeah, both exactly. of them as homosexuals, yeah. and he really wants Sonny to clarify. Have the newscasters go back on television and clarify that he's not gay. Yeah, so the newscasters at some point after the reveal of Leon and Sonny's motivation, they refer they they newscasters say there's two homosexuals robbing the bank. And then Sal has no issue being referred to as a bank robber, has no issue having his mom see him on TV as a bank robber. What he takes issue with is being identified as a homosexual. And he asks Sonny to have that change, have that clarified, tell the TV people to not refer to him as a homosexual. Bank robber's fine, homosexual's not. Extremely telling. So again, like, why is he here? What does does he? And I think if does he, he sanction what Sonny's motivation? I mean, clearly he does because he's taking part of it. I don't know if he sanctions it. I think it, I think there is a truth to what you mentioned earlier. He's blindly willing to follow Sonny along on this. I mean, he's just he 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 loves Sonny obviously like a brother, and he's he's there for him. Like it, again, the fact that all of the of all the people in in Sonny's life. He left his wife. He's not on good, great terms with her. Leon seems to have pulled away from him. The other bank robber got chicken and dropped out on him literally as they were about to rob the bank. Sal's the only one who's sticking around with him through all of this. He's just there all the time. He's by his side at all times. So I think, yeah, it's, it's almost simplifying it to a degree, but Sal's sole motivation is I'm going along with Sonny. So... We, we mentioned the, the LGBT angle of the movie. Is there anything else you guys want to say? But we mentioned Stonewall. We mentioned it was a different time, and the crowd kind of changes a bit once that motivation is revealed halfway through. Is there anything else you guys want to say about that? They tackle, they tackle this whole concept, I think, very tastefully, particularly for the time. Lumet has got to tread very carefully um, with the subject matter. And today, there would certainly be a lot of criticism about having a, a, a heterosexual male like Sarandon lately on the way he does perhaps but it's still objectively very carefully and i think uh respectfully done throughout the film yeah there's originally a, a scene well a few things there's a scene where well there, there's a scene in the movie where pacino and sarandon have like a, a phone call like we've alluded that was originally supposed to be a face-to-face thing in the street and they're supposed to kiss and i think one of the actors didn't want to do a kiss or something like that which is you know i've read that pacino made 70s thing yeah i've read that pacino well pacino well it's not that he he didn't want to kiss though because of because he didn't think it it fit for the film because again this i think that goes back what we talked about earlier the fact that lumet and pacino and pearson did not want to sensationalize and the concern was that having pacino and sarandon kiss having pacino in particular at this point in his career, he's the, one of the biggest movie stars on the planet at the time, kissing another man on screen. The fear was that would detract or distract even from the focus of the film. Right. And I, I think that there are various parts where I read that Lumet was worried about the audience laughing at things they weren't supposed to laugh at. And I think like that conversation between uh, Sonny and Leon was one of those times because it is like, you know, well, to a 1975 audience, it would appear to be two men in love, even though we understand that differently now because we have a different understanding of gender. But 
he was afraid that audiences would laugh, so he was very, very careful with that conversation in particular. And again, that co- that conversation and the will dictating were the two reasons he wanted to make the movie. So, to, yeah, I'm just agreeing with you, Ken, that he was extremely careful. And, like, even though, again, our understanding of gender has evolved immensely, immensely in the last 47 years since this came out. But I think it is, considering it was the mid-70s, this has aged decently well, and mostly because it was things with the care of the filmmakers. Um it is telling that in the background, some of the cops are like giggling and like, you know, within the, the, within the narrative of this film, based on everything we've set up, our connection with the characters, those guys come off as total assholes in that yeah. moment. Yeah. You, e- even, even in the context of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Even in 1975, like you, you yeah. don't, you don't like, oh yeah, I'm with those guys in the back. You're like, come on guys, grow up. TJ, we're stumbling through this. You got anything? <laughs> uh, yeah. So a couple interesting things, some behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, dramatically, not not historically, but dramatically within the um, structure of the film, Leon functions in an interesting way in which the film is about imagined communities of us versus them, of insiders mm-hmm. and outsiders, because that's reliant upon easily identifiable boundaries, um, which Leon as a character completely implodes, right? All of, all of those boundaries. Uh, there was an interesting thing where Sarandon had never met a trans person before. And so had a gay friend arrange a dinner party with him and four 20-something trans women. Uh, he referred to it as a transformative evening that changed how he thought about the whole idea of being transgender. And he asked at one point, did you know that you somehow had been born the wrong sex? All of them said yes. Now, what's interesting about that, uh, that I think Sarandon pushed back on behind the scenes, is Leon says, I wanted to get married, and a psychiatrist told me I was a woman trapped in a man's body. And the concern there was that that was going to pathologize his queerness, that it was going to pathologize, you know, that this is a, this is deviant behavior, this is a mental disorder. I went to a psychologist, the psychologist told me, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Sarandon seemed seemed pretty clear on making it that this was a part of Leon's experience as as it was the the transgendered women that he had dinner with, and he said even uh, after the first reading, Sidney Lumet uh, took me aside and said, "A little less Blanche Dubois, a little more Queen's housewife." <laughs> I also read that, yeah. So so that he was he was really um, insistent. Lumet was on not having as much of like a camp theatricality to it. Uh, because it would have felt too sort of performative or too perhaps parodic. But what's interesting, again, to think about is within the kind of LGBT politics of this film, this is a film, again, coming out in 1975, uh, where before you have boys in the band in terms of American film. Um, you do have cabaret, but you also have something like the Children's Hour. Mm. And if you look at, like, the Children's Hour and you look at boys in the band both of which have things to recommend them. Uh, they're about the suffering homosexual who suffers from ostracization, but also uh, remorse and shame. Within the context of this film, neither Sal nor Leon shows any remorse or shame. They're, True. they're suffering. Yeah. They're ostracized. They are down on their luck, and there's a lot of things that are uh, oppressing them, right? But neither of them has this or even when that dramatic reveal happens when you find out what Sonny's motivation is he says to the bank girls don't let it spoil your fun 
right? And and interestingly, they don't seem to really treat him any differently. There's one of them, the super Christian lady, that's like, I'm a Christian, and these words are not for my ears. So the two behaviors, the two vices that are really poo-pooed in this movie are smoking and cursing. She doesn't say anything about hanging out with a homosexual or a bisexual. Right. Um, so yeah. it, it's an interesting kind of, I, I wouldn't say blasé way, but kind of like a naturalist, objectivist way that uh, it's... It, um, that reveal is treated just kind of matter-of-factly in a way that really easily could have been sensationalist because it comes as like a dramatic reveal within the story. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a really good point that, like, you know, I haven't seen it, but I I'm, I believe Children's Hour ends with one... It's it's a lesbian relationship, and one, it ends with one of them hanging themselves, right? That's correct, yes. And in this movie, it's it's really interesting you say that. Not only, not only are they not shameful, but he's robbing a bank to assert the you know the assert their cause basically not only are they not ashamed but he's really committed to this you know it's the opposite of shame honestly and and to come back to what ken said like when the cops in the background laugh at leon and to go back to what tj said earlier this is an anti-authority movie like we're never on the cop side the entire movie including that moment and we have to understand those two things as after this twist as being intricately linked because then mm-hmm. you have as kim pointed out more people from the lgbt community coming out and cheering him on out of the closet and into the streets um being apparently, three apparently, apparently one of those uncredited extras is harvey firestein which i just want to throw out there beautiful which is great. that's being three years after the stonewall riots a f you to the police is going to be right at the forefront of what queer experiences in New York because those were the guys, not exactly, but the man, those were the guys that were beating the shit out of the people at Stonewall, right? right. So even though yeah. this is this is uh, perhaps screwball-y or slapsticky, as, as Ken mentioned earlier, well, it's also a um, he's doing it for us sort of feeling that they're having. Uh, Ken, what do you got about the, the TV angle and the celebrity angle and the, the media circus that this movie creates, that the story in the movie creates? It does not take very long for the cameras to descend upon this bank. I mean, it feels like the bank robbery escalates into this massive event in a very in very short order. The police are across the street in no time, it seems, and the cameras are not far behind them. And there are a lot of them. There are multiple helicopters. You assume at least one of the helicopters is probably the uh, law enforcement, probably NYPD. But there are a couple of news copters up there. They're watching the news in the bank. And Sonny, at one point, when he first realizes they're on television, is actually kind of excited. He gets he gets a kick out of, oh, we're on television. Oh, yeah. He absolutely gets a kick out of it. And throughout the film, we get this kind of, oh, well, the, the, the one female bank teller, the lead, the head teller, I guess, when she goes out with him at one point, he's using her. He's She's one of the hostages, and he's using her. To reinforce the, 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 the idea, don't shoot, look, I've got one of the hostages with me. And yet by the time she goes back inside with him, she's like waving to the crowd. She's kind of like kind of with him. and Oh, she's hammering up for the cameras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She's, she's, well, she's become a character. You get the delivery guy who's like super excited to be part of it when he shows he up. He jumps up and food. says, I'm a fucking star. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's holding the door. He's so happy to be part of it. And even when Sonny's mom comes to comes to meet him and and try to convince him to come out of the bank, what is the first thing she tells him? 
it's the news coverage. It's the fact that he's on T- she saw him on the television. Yeah, in in the parlance of like, you know, screenwriting one on one and stuff. Like, the end of Act One is when he first gives up a hostage, and that's when he realizes how many t- TV cameras are out there. And and so like, the break into two is like the beginning of the TV show of his bank robbery, basically, and that's kind of carries you through. The, the the bulk of the movie basically that is the bulk of the movie is like the, the the media circus around it and everyone like oh i saw you on tv i was watching you on tv like he, when he talks to his wife she says that when he talks to his mother like you said she says that when the guy with the limo arrives to take them to the airport he says yeah man i was watching you on tv like everybody you know that's that's how everybody's experiencing this robbery tj go back to what you said earlier you know it's happening now you know tj what do you got on like the celebrity media circus of it all well and it, it creates that crime as an event um the one thing that Sonny is actually good at, you could argue, is um, he's charismatic on television. You know, he, he mentioned several times, they would shoot me if this wasn't on TV. Yeah, but you also, you know, you wouldn't have thrown the money out if it wasn't on TV. Yeah, of course. The, the yeah. Attica screaming was because it's on TV. Um, even the way that he advocates for them going out and, you know, we want pizzas and we want beers, right? Like, all of that, too, is this, this sort of advent of reality TV. Even when we get the newscaster to once he gets on the phone, he's being interviewed by the news anchor. What is the one of the first things Sonny says? Well, what's in it for us? Like he's already okay. I'm going to be on TV. What am I getting out of this? Well, how is it benefiting me? Yeah, we see that throughout the film. He can't get a, you cannot get away from it. Um, he's using he's absolutely both using the television to uh, to help him as best he can, and also kind of like brushing them off as being kind of, I don't know, a nuisance. Because, again, Sal later on, when he comes, when he's objecting to the fact that he's being called homosexual on television, Sonny's response is basically, I, I can't control what they say on television. It's just a freak show. Uh, it don't matter. Whatever they say, it don't matter. But I, I was thinking, this just occurred to me, I think that, like, the TV angle kind of gives Sonny a false sense of confidence. Like, he's the hero of the show that's happening on TV right now. So, like, of course they're going to be able to get a jet and fly to another country. Realistically, like, I, I hear him say that. I'm like, this guy can't be serious. He can't actually think he's going to get a jet and they're going to let him fly away. But, like, he thinks he can. And he thinks this is this will work. And it doesn't. And he's not the one who, I mean, he serves in prison, but he's not the one who dies for this delusional attitude but I, I want to ask a question along those lines which i don't think this is a very smart question but i think it's a question that's bubbling to the surface perhaps uh one of the critiques of the film is the way in which the media sensationalizes um the story and what's what's in there is also ways in which perhaps it valorizes or glamorizes uh sunny and what he's doing does the presence of the cameras on camera remind us that we also are watching a media representation of said story and does the film potentially then participate in the glamorization and valorization of Sonny and what he did I mean you cast him with Al Pacino yeah I think any any movie is well then we get into depiction endorsement situation I don't want to have that conversation sorry that's why I mentioned that was kind of a stupid question well I think I don't think it's a stupid question I think it depends I think the answer to your question depends on how the story is resolved it's kind of like, is this a comedy or a drama? It completely comes down to how Lumet resolves the story. And it's incredibly dark. There's nothing promising here. Like, you go through all this, it's like, oh, well, let's glamorize this. The idea of glamorizing it is to make it in some way appealing to a degree, right? This film doesn't 
I don't, you, it shouldn't at least, leave you with the conclusion that, oh, yes, television helps. But you can see Lumet's thinking here already, the sensationalism within the media of events like this. Sonny is thinking to himself that television in some way is a defense. It's, it's a protection. They can't be harmed as long as they're on television. Ignoring what Lumet is already starting to hint at, that the sensationalism can just be can just be uh, aggravated to the point that no violence can also be included. Lumet's already giving a kind of a nod to where he's going. You can just say it, can you? Quit dancing around and just say what you want. What you want? <laughs> well, the say. next his next film is Network. His next film is Network. Yeah, which literally opens with I think a discuss. It's a discussion between Peter Finch and uh, William Holden about this very concept. So the connection to Network number one. You can draw a very clear through line between Attica, Attica, and I'm mad as hell, and I'm not, I'm not going to take it anymore. That's yes. number one. Number two, this bank robbery is exactly the kind of thing that um, Faye Dunaway's character Network would want to make into a TV show and put on TV. There's literally a bank robbery depicted in Network that they've got the footage yes. for. Yes, there She's is. She's so excited to put it on television. But there, there's so much that you see in this movie that leads so elegantly into network thematically whether it be the media angle the violence angle the intersection thereof tj what do you got on dog day versus network just one small critique of um i I think you're right that there's a through line between those two famous lines of dialogue but i think one thing that lumet maybe overlooks although it is within within network and the presence of the black panthers uh to a degree is the I'm a little eh, about the use of Attica as a rallying cry for someone like Sonny, given the way to really understand that story has to be understood through very deep, like, racial issues in the United States. It's glib. It's glib, for sure. And so Sonny coming out and being like, hey, remember Attica? Like, sure, as as a fellow marginalized person slash, as Fanon would say, wretched of the earth, like, it, it works there. But it's a pretty, even Howard Beale going like, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Like, okay, but you're like a white dude on TV, you know? Um, so there's, there's a little bit of like uh, some, some kind of painting over there with like the complex racial um, components that went in there. But perhaps, I mean, the, the alternative would have been yelling Stonewall, right? But maybe that's, <laughs> Lumet doesn't want to give away. He doesn't want to give away where he's taking the film. The closest alternative recently to have occurred prior to this film is Attica. Yeah, well, and that's what the real Sonny did, right? Uh, Right, yeah. uh, I want to go back to what Ken said about the kind of whether it's a tragedy or a comedy. I I, I think it's resolved, well, it's resolved much quicker in two ways. One, because it happened, it's fatalistic, right? But I think the second thing is that scene with the FBI agent is very cold. And that guy, like, at first I'm like, God, this guy's a shitty actor. Right, um, because he's he's nearly affectless. He's so morose. Uh, but it's Matthew Broderick's dad, by the are way. About, wait, are you talking about James Broderick or Lance Hendrickson, the driver or the lead FBI agent? No, the guy that comes in that wants to check around and then asks to talk to him real quick and says, "We'll take care of Sal." Yeah, okay, that's, yeah, that's James, James Broderick. Broderick. It's Ma- yeah. Matthew Broderick's dad. Okay, so when he comes in, this is interesting. Uh, Jameson reads it as in intervention of a different he, he says at this point it's not two characters it's two paradigms because the rest of the movie with its like method acting style has prepared us for more expressive acting and this guy's really really like he's inscrutable um he's very dry he's very very plain for him this is passionless there are no motivations he's just the fbi agent i don't think he has a name 
He does. He, he, he introduces himself. Sonny says, who are you? And he says, FBI, Sheldon. Okay. So his name is given, but he says FBI first. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, pure technocratic expertise and, and technique. Is all is all he is, right? Is that every uh, everyone else has been sort of bumbling to some degree, right? The Charles Durning character, Moretti, right? He was bumbling. Sonny was bumbling. This guy doesn't bumble, um, and and so that uh, cold calculatingness that goes with his character is something that to me immediately casts like a death pall over where this is going to go, even if you didn't know what was going to happen. We're going really long, and I want to wrap up. So, can, TJ, what did you want to say about the ending in the American New Wave? Uh, this is very, there's no evidence for this, uh, <laughs> but as well, I was, I'm curious about it anyway, as I was watching and you watch spoiler alert, um, you watch Sal, John Cazaley get a bullet through the head and knowing that the role that John Cazaley had sort of within the American, re- the Hollywood Renaissance, the American new wave and the, the prominence of pictures like this, that could be the fourth highest grossing film of the year. Um, knowing that the same year Jaws came out, and I love Jaws, but we'll talk more about that in a bit and how it became a sort of blockbuster juggernaut. And then two years later with Star Wars and the advent of sort of mindless franchise cinema, um, (laughs) as I'm watching his death, I'm sort of watching the death of an American, a strain in American film that like thought and took risks in an audience that would go there. And it was a little bit tragic. And that, that segues nicely into like what I want to be our ending topic for every episode, which is like putting this in a modern context. And I think this could get nominated for best picture today, but it would, it'd be either dropped on a streamer or would make like a million dollars in, you know, a, a few week release in New York and LA. There's it would no- not be the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. It would not make a quarter of a billion dollars. Oh no. No, this movie would not do. This would not play well at the box office. I do think a film like this would be nominated for Best Picture today. But yeah, I it's agree. it's not it's not making headway at the box office with lots of audiences. Like the, even even having a big star like Pacino in 1975, it's not enough today. Is it fair to say this is a movie that's a like six through ten? Where if we had five nominees, it probably wouldn't make it, but it would make it with the expanded. Six through ten. Yeah. I think it's maybe fair to say. Yeah. Um, but I also think, like, maybe just because I'm thinking about Barry Lyndon. But, okay, so I'm thinking about Barry Lyndon, and I also watched the first, like, half hour of Cuckoo's Nest recently. And this is a lot more watchable than both of those. Like, Barry Lyndon, we talked about how it's very slow and can put you to sleep. Cuckoo's Nest is also a lot slower than I remember. And this movie just, like, it just starts. This and is it a, just goes. This is a movie you know? that... The next day, I texted my dad and was like, "Have you seen Dog Day Afternoon? Because you would really like Dog Day Afternoon. Like it's yeah. it's, it's a dad yeah. movie, yeah. you know? Absolutely, yeah. That, and I do appreciate that, like you know, because you know, we the three of us have certain movie tastes, and like I get that our tastes are not the general populist taste, but like if there's a movie where I'm like, my parents would dig this, that's like a good sign, and like my parents would both dig this, you know? Like it's it's very watchable. Both of my parents spoke highly of it when I commented to this is what we were discussing this week. Both of them remember seeing it in theaters at the time and they both thoroughly enjoyed it. Now granted they went because it starred Al Pacino and John Cazale. It totally benefited from the fact that oh it's 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 Michael and Fredo uh, robbing a bank. Yeah <laughs> that's, 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 that's gotta be how to it made it. a quarter billion dollars. Yeah, yeah that, that fact right there yeah. I think that was the alternate title, Michael and Fredo Rob the Bank. <laughs> that's why that's why Sal will do anything for Sonny. He feels bad for Cuba. 
Because I'm not dumb like people say, Mikey. I'm smart. <laughs> Uh, so we think this deserves his best picture nomination. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I never know how to yes. answer. I, I never know how to answer that question. I think in 1975. Just, yeah, just we'll, say we'll yes. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it later yes. after we talk about I think all of these films. But I would go with yes. Um, I would. Okay. I would say that this is. I'm perfectly, perfectly content with this being here. And I always. I, I want to ask on on every movie we talk about. Does, how does this stack up against you know modern or historical best picture nominees? I think this is better than most movies nominated for best picture in the last decade. I think. This is really good. I, I agree with that. Yeah. There are a few slow scenes. and In fact, I actually read that Lumet added in more scenes, like more slower scenes because like it's it, like moved too good. Yeah, it's quickly, like pa- it's <laughs> quickly paced. It's, it's moving. From, as you said, in the very beginning, I mean, it starts with a, it starts with a very 70s Elton John beat there, which is, I believe, playing through the radio of the getaway car, um, technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. That's the, the, the. But it goes right from that to into the bank. Let's start this robbery. Yeah, I, I mentioned the screenwriting one hundred and one stuff in the act one. Like the inciting incident, structurally speaking, from a screenplay standpoint, the inciting incident is arguably not them going into the bank to rob it. It's arguably the police contacting them. Correct. Because they're contacted by the police within the first fifteen minutes. You know, and they're they have guns out in the bank within the first three minutes. You know, that's the inciting incident. It, is it, the, it just starts. Yeah, Pacino gets the phone call, and the camera cuts. Yeah. And, and to across the street, and you see Charles Durning across the street. Yeah, yeah, the, the negotiator. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, good movie, man. Yeah. Any closing thoughts before we before we break? I was glad that I had an excuse to finally get to it, so that it's no longer a shameful blind spot. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, any final final thoughts? Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable watch, and can't. I don't. I think uh, we'll, he'll come up again. But Sidney Lumet may be one of the more, uh, I guess, uh, underappreciated directors. I, I I know that we. I know TJ doesn't really like the, that word necessarily, or underappreciated perhaps. But uh, Lumet doesn't get talked about enough, and he's got a terrific filmography, and this is certainly up there at the top, uh, along with Network and Twelve Angry Men. I think the reason why he's not talked about that much is what we hit on at the beginning, which is that there's not like a, oh, here's a frame. I can tell that's a Sidney Lumet movie, you know, which yeah. which we tend, you know, the way we talk about populist auteurs now tends to be that they need to have this immediately recognizable visual style. Otherwise, it's quote unquote not directed, you know, um, yeah. and I, I don't believe that, by the way. But I think that's probably part of why he's he's um, underappreciated, if you will. Yeah, but read making movies. It's great. Can't recommend it enough. Um, and watch Dog Day Afternoon. It rules. It's really good. <laughs> um, this is a good counterbalance to Barry Lyndon, which was long and slow and a slog. And this is uh, fast and exciting and really great, man. Are we doing Jaws next? Probably. I mean, we'll decide this later, I guess. Well, thank you for listening. I have been Josh, that's been TJ, that's been Ken. And uh, join us again next time on Serious Fun People for Jaws, maybe. Or whatever we do next. Cheerio! Cheerio!